gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. During my trip to Consum World Expo in Tempe, Arizona this summer, I interviewed a number of interesting people. This is the third of those interviews. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with prolific game designer and insurgent provocateur Brian Train. We will discuss the myriad of games he brought with him to Consim World Expo and his future plans. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Brian attended the University of Victoria studying political science. The university's mottos, shown on the UVic coat of arms, are Let There Be Light, in Hebrew, and a multitude of the wise is the health of the world, in Latin. Brian's a proud veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces and lives in British Columbia. He's worked for the government of British Columbia for over 25 years as an education officer within the Ministry of Advanced Education. Over the past 25 years, he's had articles published in Command, Counterfact, Cry Havoc, Modern War, Paper Wars, Strategy and Tactics, World at War, and Yah! Magazines. In addition, he's published games with BTR Games, Compass Games, Decision Games, Fiery Dragon Productions, Flying Pig Games, GMT Games, Hollenspiel, Lock and Load, Micro Game Design Group, One Small Step, Shoots Games, Simulations Workshop, Strategy Gaming Society, Steam Bubble Graphics, and Tiny Battle Publishing. I've gotten to know Brian's work through his excellent designs of a distant plane and colonial twilight, as well as dinners at Consum World Expo. We'll start the interview with a question on the myriad of games he brought with him to Consum World Expo to show publishers and players alike. Well, it's been a very busy year for me so far. Um, I uh, have published four things so far in the first uh, five months. I uh, published uh, Finnish Civil War uh, with Compass Games. That was in Paper Wars magazine. That came out in time for the uh, centennial of the Finnish Civil War, January 18. Uh, after that was uh, Tupamaro, which is uh, a reissue of one of the first games I ever designed on the Uruguay. Uh, Tupamaro urban guerrillas in Uruguay who were active from 1968 to 1972. Um, one of my first games and uh, an interesting sort of guerrilla warfare game. It uh, threw a few ideas out the window uh, that I think some people caught and some people didn't. And then there was uh, um, Chile 73 which is a, a small game that I'd done on um, the coup in Santiago in 1973 that over, overthrew Salvador Allende and put Pinochet in power. And uh, finally, most recently, uh, Strike for Berlin, which is a reworking of uh, an earlier game I did called Freikorps. Uh, and it's an alternate history game where the Red Army uh, is supposed to have won the Battle of Warsaw in August of 1920. And so they've taken Poland and now they decide they're going to go for the big prize and they just roll over the border and they head for Berlin. So it's an interesting uh, alt uh, alt um, alternate history exercise. Uh, 
So that's what I've published so far. But what I've brought to Consum World uh, Expo with me is two quads, um, where they're just two sets of four games um, that use two different systems. One is the Brief Border Wars system, I call it. And um, a couple of years ago, I published uh, a game through Hollandspiel, uh, the Ukrainian crisis game. And it came out in boxed form with a small game, no more than, I think it was 30 or 40 counters, called The Little War. And this was a, a, a little mini game on the well-known border war uh, that was fought between Hungary and Slovakia for one week in March of 1939. You mean you didn't know? You're giving me a blank look, Harold. <laughs> so anyway, the, it, we were putting together Ukrainian crisis, and the way um, things fell out uh, it, with the counter mix is that there were 30 blanks left on the counter sheet. So I said to Tom Russell, uh, you know, 30 blanks, that seems like kind of a waste. I have this small game, you know, on this well-known conflict that uses about 30 counters. Do we stick it in? Anyway, and it was published, and uh, people liked it, and more importantly, I liked it. Uh, it's a nice little system that uh, you can use to generate um, a small conflict, you know, with a lot of chaotic back and forth. Um, but because it's driven by a set of cards, uh, it's over very quickly. Yes, you, when you use up the cards, the game's over. So I showed this to the guys from Compass Games uh, at last year's Consum World Expo. And they said, oh, that sounds like an interesting idea. Um, number one, have it use a special deck of cards, because the original one used a deck of ordinary playing cards, uh, because people like paying for special cards. And, well, I, I don't know why someone would want to pay for special cards, but that's why I'm not in marketing. <laughs> I just design these things. I don't market them. Um, and uh, so do that, and make four more, and we'll put them in a box. So, here it is a year later, and I made a special deck of cards, and I made four of them, and uh, now I'll hand it over to them, Ken Dingley, when I see him. I haven't seen him yet. It's early in the week, and uh, hopefully they will put them in a box. And it's, um, there are four games. Each one is uh, 40 or 50 counters, uh, and there are four situations where there was a brief border war between two countries where historically the um, end of the war ended pretty much the way it started at the beginning. And the first one is uh, the soccer war, uh, El Salvador and Honduras in 1969. Uh, people call it the soccer war because ostensibly it started over the outcome of a, a soccer game between El Salvador and Honduras. But in actual fact, it was, uh, you know, the climax of some very severe political um, and social tensions between El Salvador and Hungary, and it uh, it was a it was a very short conflict, but it ended in the death of you know quite a few thousand civilians. So it's not as comedic as you think it would be. Um, there was that, uh, and then there's another game uh, on the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974. Uh, nobody has ever done a game on that before. Um, I guess they thought there wasn't much of a game of it, but I, I tried to make a game of it. Um, so it's an interesting situation where one side invades an island that's completely occupied by the other side and is trying to occupy the parts of the island that are most important to it ethnically. Because uh, the reason why Turkey invaded in 1974 was all about the Turkish ethnic minority and how they were being mistreated by the Greek ethnic majority. 
and uh, you know, and then there's the whole question of enosis or you know a unity with Greece, and of course. Um, uh, when when that conflict was over in 1974, the Turks were left in possession of sort of the the, the western half or sorry eastern half of the island, um, which they turned into the Republic of Northern Cyprus, um, which, which is what it's referred to today. But it's not a country that anybody recognizes as one that actually exists. But anyway, uh, enough of that. It's um, then the next one is uh, China Vietnam 1979. So some people have done games on that before uh but you know the nat- and this is in a much much higher scale uh of uh of, of conflict you know, you've got divisions and corps maneuvering back and forth instead of battalions um but still basically for the chinese it was like a large raid uh where they went in and went out again because you know as they said it was a punitive expedition to uh kind of teach the vietnamese their place although the vietnamese um uh, they uh, taught the Chinese uh, and brought to light a lot of defects and a lot of shortcomings in their own military. It's uh, a it's a conflict that uh, still stains their relationship. As oh, we work absolutely. in the South China Sea mm-hmm. conflict, and I try to document that, that very issue uh, comes up again and again. Yep, absolutely. And it's, you know, again, this is a war that only lasted uh, not even two months uh, and had a, just a couple of active phases in it. But you're right, it is something that has uh, definitely stained relations between the two and um, at the time drove them into very different sort of spheres. Um, And then the fourth one is uh, the Second Lebanon War of 2006, which is the Israeli Defense Forces going into southern Lebanon to uh, hit Hezbollah. And this was something, uh, again, a very short conflict. Uh, but one that pointed out a lot of defects in the um, uh, Israeli army and um, in in a way vindicated Hezbollah's method of warfare, which was pretty much to turn southern Lebanon into a very prickly armed sponge. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's interesting there. So each of these games is different in its own way. Um, there are different chrome units and different routines in each one that are fairly simple, but they lend quite a bit of flavor. Uh, to each game and uh, that's the brief border war system the other one uh, quad game is a set of four games using uh, what I call the district commander series or system uh, which is diceless operational level counterinsurgency and this is a system that I've been kind of toying with for the last eight years or so I, it's one of those things I'm sure every designer has some kind of idea or concept they want to work out or a particular uh, way of approaching a problem, and they just can't make up their minds as to how best to treat it. So, you know, you'll, you'll take something and you'll work on it a little while and get it rewritten so that it makes the, you know, the game makes these points and it has these points of emphasis. And then a little while later you come back to it and say, well, that's all wrong. I wanted to do this. I want to do this other thing. So you swing it back again. So over the last few years, I've been kind of going back and forth over this. The only thing that I really wanted to do was uh, have it not use dice. Um, instead, what you have in are these um, chance chits. You know, again, I'm not a marketing guy. I can't think of snappy names for things. <laughs> and uh, each chit has three ratings on it. Uh, one is uh, intelligence. Uh, rating one is troop rating and one is uh, what we call the simic rating or civil military cooperation um, so intelligence is what uh, the two sides use to uh, 
to find the enemy or evade the enemy. Um, troop rating is kind of troop quality and firepower and uh, just general quality of troops, morale, cohesion, that kind of thing, all rolled up into one number. And then the Simic rating is about um, uh, things like uh, the sort of the whole civil uh, creation of uh, political and um, infrastructure, uh, intimidation, psychological warfare, those kinds of things. So that's all rolled up into that. So you have this set of chits uh, that each side draws from at the beginning of the turn, and the ratings on the chance chits are all mixed up. So you have a, a random draw at the beginning, but during the course of the player turn, you can choose which chits you want to play. And of course, one can be very good at one function and, and not so good at another. So you want to use it for that function, but you don't always have that choice if you've run out of, you know, ones that are good for one thing and yet you have to keep going with something, then you will end up using, you know, <laughs> you'll end up allocating your resources, you know, not as well as you could have. But in a way, it's diceless, yet you are, in a way, choosing your die rolls in advance which is a, a concept that I, I, I kind of I kind of liked. And at the at the time I was sort of entertaining thoughts of giving it to the army, you know, as a, a way of a, a simple counterinsurgency game that uh, could be used in a classroom, you know, with minimal explaining of how to play the game and not having to use dice because sometimes, you know, uh, professional military types look down on the use of dice. You know, how can you how can you abstract everything how can you reduce it all to the role of a die so best not have that conversation so just let get rid of the dice and of course there's the basic challenge of designing something um without dice in a hobby that overwhelmingly uses dice or some kind of random uh number generator uh to get it at least our done. segment of the gaming hobby yes. well certainly our segment is and and there are lots of diceless games um but i prefer to let the randomness come from the players so I thought this was an approach to that. The other nice thing, though, that, that comes from using chits instead of dice is that you control the distribution, and we don't have the opportunity to roll six three times against our opponent in a row, right? Yep. It gives the designer more control. It gives the player more predictability. And, and even if it were random from a chit draw perspective, which it doesn't sound like it is it's as much, it uh, is is more controlled. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly how I set up the chance chits. Uh, there are 48 of them. Uh, and uh, the the distribution the, and the three ratings that I mentioned have three different distribution structures. So, uh, you know, with, with some of them, they're sort of clumped around the three and four. With others, they're evenly distributed. So, and, and then they're scrambled yet again. So uh, you can't really count on on, on that sort of thing so you know that that was good um and uh there are other than that uh there's sort of a set of of counters that are common to insurgent counters that are common to all of all four of the games just your basic militia and guerrilla kind of structure usually um uh, you start by recruiting militia in an area, and then you recruit them and train them up into being guerrillas. And then the guerrillas have different ratings. Um, so some are good at, you know, hiding, and some are have better firepower, that kind of thing. But the counterinsurgent forces are particular to the particular time uh, and, and area of the, uh, of the conflict. And so there are four games that use uh, the same basic system, but like an old one of the old SPI quads, uh, 
each module has different rules um, that are peculiar uh, to that particular uh, time and setting. So um, the, one of them is um, takes place in Algeria in 1959. So you... Um, don't have it as unlike the other games you don't have the sort of host nation and intervening military power kind of uh, situation you just have the french uh and who have some very good troops but also have some very poor troops uh and some you know very um reluctant support you know from the population uh and you also have some particular chrome rules that were uh you know, that are particular to the conflict, like uh, the French player can resettle population in certain areas, which reduces the population that's available uh, from uh, for either side to recruit from. Uh, however, it does deny support to the guerrillas as well, because once that's been done, it reduces the population. Uh, but the, um, the, the insurgent player cannot recruit militia there anymore. So there is a reason for you to do it, um, but you, um, you, you end up um, paying the price in other ways. Um, that was Algeria, and there's uh, another one that takes place in Binh Dinh province in the central coast of Vietnam in 1969. There you have considerable American and South Korean forces, because this is where the South Korean uh, division was deployed during, uh, during the war. Um, and it takes place in 1969, so uh, you have them operating in the area, and they're very powerful. Uh, you have the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, uh, which is represented by some regular troops, um, but more uh, sort of militia-style troops, because at this time, uh, that's sort of the era of the big battles from the Tet Offensive and so forth had kind of passed. Um, and, the, uh, and the Arvin, the American, uh, the uh, Republic of Vietnam Army, was reducing itself more to like a, a, call it like a garrison army. So you had the regional forces and the popular forces that were scattered all over the villages and towns. Uh, so they have more of a static source, and the striking arm is uh, the American uh, and Korean units. And there you have, uh, for Chrome rules, you have, uh, well, I, I, I put in an Agent Orange rule. So um, you have uh, the, um, the ability to, um, to defoliate an area in, uh, of the map, which reduces its, uh, in the game, it reduces its terrain modifier, which does make it easier to find the enemy. However, if you use Agent Orange in an area, you forgo ever getting popular support uh, for the government from the people in the area because you've come and you've poisoned all their rice and killed all their trees and, you know, poisoned the population as well. And yet it's done, you know, for tactical or rather operational reasons. I think this is the first operational scale Vietnam game I've ever seen that treated the use of defoliants. Uh, there are a couple of strategic games um, that you know, acknowledge the widespread use of defoliants uh, in the war. Uh, for example, in uh, Fire in the Lake, the coin system game, there's an Agent Orange it's a card. card. Right. Yeah, and but it kind of comes and goes. But in this one, it's an actual tool, you know, in the counterinsurgents box uh, to use. Um, and uh, there's a little bit, uh, and, and, and unlike the Algerian conflict, 
helicopters were much more abundant, so the uh, counterinsurgent forces have uh, uh, this ability to use air, air mobility and you know lift helicopters from one place to another. So they're um, a lot more mobile than they would be you know, in, in other cases. Uh, the third game is Kandahar Province in Afghanistan in 2009. And again, you have uh, a, a host nation military that is not very good quality. You have a brigade of the Afghan National Army and a bunch of Afghan National Police Forces and village militia that aren't very good. And you have a very limited number of ISAF forces. So uh, these are like companies and battalions of NATO troops who, again, are very mobile uh, or have air mobile and uh, have these, these assets as well. Uh, so intelligence uh, assets and firepower and that kind of thing. Another part uh, that makes this uh, particular one different from the others is uh, the role of non-state militia and criminal gangs. So in response to areas of the map being terrorized, uh, which can happen through uh, too free use of firepower by either side, uh, you can uh, have these non-state militias popping up. So these are forces that are opposed to the insurgent, but they're not under control of the government. So they will attack the insurgents, but they will do so in such a manner that it will actually spread further terror. Uh, and the criminal gangs, that's acknowledging, you know, organized crime. Uh, and again, these are spring up in areas that are terrorized and have no police presence. And what they do is they deny uh, popular support to the government player, uh, just as the non-state militia ones uh, deny popular support to the insurgent. So both sides are motivated to wipe out these bit players uh, in, in, the con in the conflict as well. And then the fourth one is, uh, um, takes place in an imaginary um, megacity. And this whole uh, idea of, um, of um, sort of combat inside a large city is something that's been occupying my mind for a couple of years. And it's something that's very thoroughly fixed in the attention of the uh, American military. Um, I, I think, you and Harold, you and I have talked before about insurgency. There's a, a very good writer on insurgency by the name of David Kilcullen. He wrote a book a few years ago called The Accidental Guerrilla, and it was about the insurgencies in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, a few years ago, he wrote another book, uh, which is kind of a sequel to The Accidental Guerrilla, called Out of the Mountains. And it was talking about how uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan have actually... Uh, in modern terms, they're kind of outliers because from now on, the likelihood of conflict, sustained irregular conflict, is not going to be in the back of beyond, in deserts and hills. It's going to be in slums. So you look at all of the cities in the world and how fast they're growing, how strained their infrastructures are, how their governments don't even make a, a, a pretense of an attempt to keep control or address the very real social, political, and economic concerns of the people who have to live in these things. Um, and you see that there's a very great likelihood of some very, very ugly, irregular conflicts to come in the future. Whether they involve you know, American or other interventionist forces or not, it is debatable, um, but it's likely that they may be drawn into something like that. At the very least, it's a huge challenge to the security forces of whatever country, you know, that city happens to be in. And Kilcullen starts the book by devoting an entire chapter 
to the action in Mumbai that uh, was a few years ago. And he goes into great detail telling everything that is popularly known about how um, the insurgents... The assault on the hotel, right? The assault on the hotel. But he talks in great detail about how the insurgents trained for this, how they rehearsed for it, how they infiltrated Mumbai in fishing boats, and uh, how they uh, stayed in touch with each other, and how they were commanded uh, from very far away by uh, use of things like Google Earth and text messaging and that kind of thing. And as yeah, as you say, they attacked this hotel, and it wasn't long before they had thrown that whole quarter of the city into complete and utter turmoil because the Indian army and the Indian police forces, um, you know, were completely unprepared to cope with anything like this. And you know, this was a very very small force of people, you know, who had spent a long time training and preparing for it. But in the great scale of things, you know, it didn't cost very much, and it had an effect that was hugely out of proportion. So both in the short term and the long term. Yes, exactly, yeah. in the short term and in the long term. So this is a really good example of the kind of thing, you know, that we can count on happening in the future. So, um, so Kilcullen devotes an entire chapter to uh, the Mumbai operation. And I, I found that kind of thing very, very interesting. So um, I wanted to design a game about an insurgency in an imaginary megacity. And um, I designed an, a game a few years ago called Caudillo. And it was uh, takes place in the fictional nation of Virtualia. Uh, it was, it's a multiplayer um, sort of power politics card game. It's sort of cards and dice and things. Um, but it's about filling the power vacuum in the departure of a strong man in uh, an unnamed or imaginary Latin American country. Um, so it's a very thinly disguised post-Chavez Venezuela, except I designed this in 2013 uh, when Chavez was still alive, but uh, hadn't yet picked his successor. And Venezuela, as we know, has been in meltdown mode for the na last year or two at least, uh, and is not doing at all well. Um, but anyway, people are having trouble getting food. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, so it's a very complex situation and certainly in exploring it, I didn't want it to be explicitly set in, in, uh, in Venezuela. So instead I, you know, had my little joke and Venezuela becomes Virtualia and the capital city of Caracas becomes the, uh, city of Maracas, uh, <laughs> and the departing <laughs> and the parting, uh, um, uh, of the of the strong man Jesus Chavez, or Jesus Shaves, <laughs> as Americans would pronounce it, of <laughs> is uh, the the um, it's it's the uh, opportunity for a number of factions, you know, three to five players in the game to uh, to uh, work uh, and try to uh, create a new power base and become the new government of of this country. Uh, however, uh, what I did was for this game is I just resurrected the city of Maracas and married it up with, uh, you know, a Google Earth shot of a, a large city and divided it into sectors. Um, so this fourth game in the series takes place in the mythical city of Maracas. Uh, it's a very different scale from the others because instead of it being a piece of, uh, you know, desolate countryside, it's one city of, oh, let's say three to five million people. So densely populated uh, and uh, very challenging terrain. And again, this is a game where the sort of 
time and space dilemmas of movement, how far somebody can move in a given area and how much they can do in a given period of time. Th that kind of dilemma that, that, that concerns um, a lot of war game designers, you know, working on a standard war game, when you've got an elastic time scale for each turn and you have uh, a, a fairly small physical space to work in, those time and space dilemmas don't matter. You know, if you need a, a rifle company at a given place, generally it's assumed that you can you can bring it there to do its job. Same thing if you need to assemble a team of guerrillas to do and to run an intimidation campaign against the local police in you know your given barrio, then they can do it. Um, so those time and space things don't really matter. And again, nobody actually occupies terrain in this game because it's. Uh, each side can interpenetrate any kind of zone uh, that anybody cares to set up. So that doesn't matter. Instead, what you have is you have a large number of insurgent forces uh, that are milling around inside a city, and the counterinsurgents is, is trying to um, detect them uh, through you know the usual methods of patrols and sweeps. Uh, he also has informer networks. That's one piece of chrome that's in that game that is not in the others. And you also have um, sort of rogue security elements. You know, again, the, the, the non-state militias show up. Uh, and, of course, what's a city without criminals? So you need gangsters. And so uh, the, uh, the counterinsurgent uh, has uh, a, a, a force of middling quality. You know, he has a very small number of uh, regular troops to count on. Uh, and there are a few interventionist troops as well. So imagine this is something like something on the order of a brigade combat team, you know, or, or smaller, uh, that's uh, in, in deployed in the city to assist uh, the, um, the counterinsurgent forces. But they have rather more um, assets, intelligence assets, and um, uh, a police force. Because at a certain level, uh, especially in a city, uh, fighting an insurgency is a lot more like standard police work. So... Um, Whoever publishes this, I don't know, maybe they'll keep it, but I did put in one counter uh, that uh, has Columbo's face on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to put Columbo in a game somewhere. <laughs> right, right, that's good. <laughs> so, yes, he's very good at finding the enemy, and uh, you can never eliminate him because right. he always survives for another season. Right, even if you don't think he's going to figure it out, he figures it out at the that's end. That's right, yeah. yeah. So I just had to put have a war game with uh, a counter with Columbo's <laughs> face on it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, so that's the fourth. And, and that's the... So those are the two quads. Um, the uh, Another game that I brought with me is um, my third coin system game. And uh, do, do you want to talk about that now? Or do that you would be talk? great. No, let's, okay. let's keep rolling. That's no, terrific. No, you had a question. So Well, I was <clears> going to ask you. I was going to, to draw the parallel between the uh, counterinsurgency games that you've made and then the benchmark with which we're both very familiar which is the coin system. And, mm -hmm. of course, uh, Volko has said early on that you influenced him in his design of the coin system. So would love to hear how your new quad concept, the, the, the standard rules, if you will, compare to, uh, to the mechanisms involved in coin. Um, actually, there's not very much relation at all. Uh, the the parts of my games that Volko came in touch with when he was developing the uh, the coin system uh, was a, a, a game called Algeria, and this was the f uh, a game I designed in 2000. This was the first 
uh, game in any language on the Algerian war. And I, as I said, I designed it in 2000 and no one really paid much attention to it. Uh, but then 9-11 happened and suddenly people were interested in you know, Muslim insurgencies and places and times when uh, Western armies had fought Muslims. And uh, everyone's familiar with the story of how it wasn't very long after 9-11 that the film Battle of Algiers was screened for senior officers in the Pentagon and that sort of thing. And as it turned out, in 2007, I was contacted by someone in the office of the Secretary of Defense uh, who was uh, part of, uh, I guess, a unit in the office of the Secretary of Defense that worked on sort of experiments and modeling things. Um, sort of a, a kind of a wargaming unit. And he told me how he had been using uh, my Algeria game and the, sort of the, the framework for my Algeria game, which featured two very different forces, force types and force structures, with two very different and asymmetric uh, menus of actions possible to them. Um, and yet they had the same general objective of driving down one side or the other's political support, but the methods they had to do that were completely different. So a very asymmetric game. And what he had done is he had sort of used the structure of that game to build his own model of the Iraqi insurgency. And uh, he was going to present his work at uh, a special workshop of the Military Operations Research Society. Uh, and would I like to come and see what he had done? Oh boy, would I? <laughs> so this was my first exposure to the professional wargaming community and um, the very limited way in which uh, the civilian hobby can sometimes make a contribution to the serious end of, of professional wargaming and, and professional modeling of some very real conflicts. And while I was there at this workshop, I met a colleague of Volko's um, and... Uh, Later on, this colleague uh, and I worked on a sort of easier, sort of degritted version of my Algeria game so that he could use it in his classrooms because Algeria was one of the case studies um, in, uh, in, that he did with his students. And Volko happened to see uh, the, uh, the, the game that uh, his colleague was using and, and how he was using it. And I guess it must have given him some ideas uh, because at the same time he had been doing, you know, he already had had uh, a couple of designs uh, published, uh, Washington's War and Labyrinth. Uh, Labyrinth had come out by then, hadn't it? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, he had those ideas and he just married them and uh, came up with the coin system. And uh, I didn't know this at the time. I and uh, it's funny because at a Consum World Expo, uh, I think it was in 2010, I came and I, I play-tested and Day in Abyss. And uh, Volko wasn't there. Joel Toppin was running the development at the time. So Joel brought it and I sat down and I, I play-tested and I think, man, this is really clever. And I had no idea of what his of, of what his uh, influences and impulses had been. So was I ever surprised when a year or two later, you know, and Dan Abyss comes out and I look in the playbook and there's my name. <laughs> <laughs> and Volko is, is, is he's, Volko is just such a, a, a prince of a guy. Uh, I, no doubt. Yeah, you, you'll agree with me. And he's so great at uh, giving help to people uh, and just listening seriously to people with ideas and encouraging them. 
and uh, he never forgets to be polite or name check people. Uh, and it's uh, it's role been, model behavior. It's an, it really is incredible. Absolutely. And let me let me let me correct one thing. You said Washington's War. That of course was Wilderness War. Wilderness War. Uh, but anyway, yes, that is the coin system, and uh, so that's how my Al- Algeria game. You know uh, how it contributed in part to the initial development of the coin system, and then after Ende and Abyss had come out, I met Volko at a conference on professional military gaming called Connections, uh, and uh, we sat down, we had a bit of a talk, and Volko said, well, we should work together on something. What do you think we should do? And I said, well, let's go for the big one. Let's, let's do Afghanistan. And that's how we came out with A Distant Plane, and I was very, very pleased with how that came out. And it was uh, Actually, that was the first time that I had formally worked with somebody else on a design, and uh, I learned a lot from Volko. So that was great. Don't we all? Yes. Yep. Um, and so that came out. And uh, then after that, uh, I was um, at another Consum World Expo. See, I keep coming to these Consum World Expos and things keep happening. So I have to keep coming. <laughs> I, have, I haven't been to every Consum World Expo. I started coming in 2005. And I haven't attended everyone since then. But I think I've attended most of them. But you've, learned, you've learned the trick. I, I, you know, as I mentioned in the lobby, you're starting to bring your wife. Oh, so I always very, brought her. That's a very effective strategy. So you've always used that. Yes, I've, o- I've always brought her. She's a, you know, <laughs> I've never attended one of these things solo. Uh, it's a vacation for us as yes, well. So yes. I spend my time, you know, talking to publishers and showing my stuff. And she sits by the pool and I bring her ice cream every little while. Perfect. So that's good. It works out really well. Good no, she you. loves the desert. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a good getaway for us as well. Uh, but it was at the end of one of these Consum World Expos, and Mark Simonich came to me and said, um, well, we think that there should be a coin system game on the Algerian War, and we think that you should be the guy to design it. And since I was the first guy ever to design a game on that war, uh, I found myself getting to work on the third game ever designed on the Algerian War. So it was kind of weird, you know, considering the input, that the game had had on the coin system is kind of like coming back to the Maghreb, you know, in full circle. Uh, And that was how Colonial Twilight came to be. And that came out last year, and I've been very, very pleased with that. And people seem to really like that design. Um, It's uh, an interesting evolution, taking the coin system, uh, which had up till then had been for four people, and reducing it to two and figuring out a mechanism for that. Um, I also came out with a variant, uh, and I think we, you and I have talked about this, and I think you, you did a scenario for Liberty or Death, right. which uh, was a method of reducing those four factions so that they're playable by two. Using, using the sequence of play from your work, yes. Yes, using the sequence of play from Colonial Twilight. Um, and just to make things right, uh, a while ago I came up with a four-player variant for Colonial Twilight. <laughs> So, you know, if some four people get together some night and they want to play Colonial Twilight, but there's only one set, uh, or, you know, if uh, maybe they just want to explore some of the historical divisions, you know, um, that that the historical antagonists had, then four people can get together and play this. And I I know that someone has tried this at least once because there was a Belgian fellow on, uh, I think he was Belgian, on uh, Board Game Geek uh, who tried this a couple of times and said, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Hey, good things to say about it. So what we do, what I did there is uh, the government side is divided into two players, uh, and the one side controls um, 
sort of the the the, the, the static part, uh, you know, the police and uh, some other aspects uh, of of the operations, and the other government player is like the kinetic part of the operation. So these are all the the paras, you know, the paratrooper mafia, and uh, they handle the kinetic and the aggressive military operations to seek out the FLN. Um, but the other player is sort of like more of the political hearts and minds garrison type. So two different styles of play, and they're both looking to win the war in their own approaches. Meanwhile, the FLN is divided into two players, and one is the one that's in charge of the insurgent forces inside Algeria, and the other one is in charge of operations outside of Algeria. And But all of the goodies come from outside of Algeria. So in a sense, he's kind of got his hand on the garden hose, you know, that right. supplies, you know, the um, the effort inside the, the Algeria. The resources and the pieces, yep. so to speak, right? And again, this reflects the very real division and, and lack of central command and decision-making in the FLN historically, because uh, in the latter two years of the war, the FLN was had substantial forces in Tunisia and Morocco and was playing kind of a waiting game because they knew that it was just a matter of time before they took over as the government of Algeria, and they intended to have the biggest and strongest armed force in order to be able to enforce their law uh, when when it, it came time. So um, just so just to be different, I took a two-player game and turned it into a four-player game. <laughs> That's great. Because well, because I could, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, so that was Colonial Twilight. Now um, I have brought uh, my third coin system game with me. Uh, to this game, uh, to this game convention, and it's called Thunder Out of China. Uh, I may change the title. I may not. Uh, you may re- under- you may recognize the title. As, uh, it was the title of a book uh, about uh, that was written in I think the 30s or 40s about the Chinese Revolution. Um, but it's about China from 1937 to 41, which is the initial invasion by the Japanese, continuing through to the end of 1941, which was about the time that the that Japan more or less shut down, you know, the um, the war in China and concentrated uh, on the overseas part, until about 1944 or 45, when they had a few offensives uh, underway in China. So this one again is for four players. Uh, so you have four factions, uh, the Japanese, uh, the Chinese Communists, uh, the uh, KMT Central, which is Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and the KMT, uh, call them ex-warlords. So they are part of the Chinese army, but they're governed by uh, people that Chiang had brought into line. And so uh, the four, so it, you have a Japanese invasion that's opposed by three Chinese factions, uh, but none of the factions like each other very much. So all of them are resisting the Japanese invasion, but at the same time, they're looking to frustrate each other. So there's a lot of suborning and subverting, and the uh, KMT Central is always taking the warlord troops along for a ride and burning them up in futile assaults against the Japanese, that kind of thing. So I think it would be a really good game for four passive-aggressive types to play <laughs> against each other. <laughs> Sort of like, well, I don't want to do it. You do it, you know. <laughs> and the other thing, the other, so the relationships between the factions are are, are fairly. It's different from many of the, of the other coin games that have come out. The other thing that is a little twisted, uh, has a little twist of emphasis in the game, is the use of lines of communication. Um, a lot of people 
who start in on playing the coin system games, they don't know how to use the lines of communication. They treat it as simply a border between two two provinces or states or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so they're playing they're playing the coin system game, but they're playing it like it's an area movement game, strictly an area movement game. The learning curve comes is when they start to learn and how to use the lines of communication and how to exploit them and what they're really there for. And then it becomes a different kind of game. In this uh, Thunder Out of China game, you have to do that from the very beginning. For the Japanese player, the nature of the Japanese player's occupation of China historically was they were looking to secure just the cities and the industrial infrastructure of China uh, and the railroads and the river lines that connected them, so the lines of communication. So in this game, the, China, the Japanese victory condition is seizing and, con and dominating as much as possible of the network of rail lines and rivers uh, that constitute all the lines of communication system in China, while taking as few casualties as possible. Uh, that is wasting as little military effort as possible in order to keep Tokyo's interest up. If they take too many, if they don't seize enough of the network, or if they take too many casualties doing it, then Tokyo's commitment to prosecuting the war in China is going to go down, and it's just going to make it more and more difficult for them to get their job done. Um, meanwhile, the other three factions have different victory conditions as well. Uh, for the Chinese communists, uh, they are the only insurgent faction uh, in in the game, um, and they're they have pretty much the usual kind of insurgent urges. Uh, they have an all guerrilla army. They're trying to expand their influence as much as possible, create opposition to uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government, and build a network of bases. So pretty much like the other insurgents, you know, in the other coin games uh, that deal with modern insurgencies. Uh, for the, the KMT Central, uh, they're looking to have as much patronage as possible. So that's a concept lifted from a distant plane. Uh, and it's reflective of roughly the same kind of thing because Chiang Kai-shek, uh, together with you know Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan, to be top man, he had to constantly play off all of these little factions against the other, in order to get them to get their support to keep him on top. Um, so th we use the the sort of concept of patronage as being an accumulation of these kinds of resources that are necessary uh, in order to keep your the people who are loyal to you loyal to you uh, and you know trading of favors and just this very very delicate balancing act um, so what they're looking to do is to have people actually support the um, the uh, the um, uh, government of, of China but also to have as much patronage as possible and then the ex-warlords are looking to control large amounts of population uh, so they don't care if they support or oppose the government. They just want control over a large pool of people, uh, and they also want to be as rich as they can. So they're somewhat analogous to the warlords in a distant plane. I don't want to imply that this is any kind of a, just like a porting over of a distant plane, but really when you look at you know, the, these dimensions of the historical conflict, uh, it's kind of the same things are happening. Uh, yeah, kind of the same impulses. And yet there are some, as I said, about the lines of communication, uh, something that where you don't have to introduce any new mechanisms, really, uh, but it's a very different emphasis in, in how to play the game.
I actually designed this game three years ago. Uh, I got it to about the, the half-finished half part while I was working on Colonial Twilight, uh, but I had to finish Colonial Twilight and you know, finish it off properly, so I kind of put this one on the shelf and um, went to, to work on Colonial Twilight, and I was very, very pleased with how Colonial Twilight came out, so it was time well spent. But now that that is out, it was time to take um, uh, the China game back off the shelf and work on it again. So I'm showing it here to people. Um, it's in a state where it can be played and test out the mechanisms. I'm quite pleased with the mechanisms and the asymmetries that I've built into the game so far. That's half the work of, um, maybe even less than half the work, but it's the concept work that goes into a coin system game. And it has to, to work well. But where a lot of the basic labor of uh, working a, co a coin system game is the research that goes into the event deck. Uh, so each card has to have you know some kind of relation to history, uh, some kind of um, some kind of uh, reasonable interpretation of its historical impact, modeled in game terms. And then, of course, there's all the research and footnotes that you have to put in, because I think it's very important that, uh, as much as possible, that any coin system game in the playbook shows its homework. And, you know, liberty or death, I, you must have read an entire library of books on the Revolutionary War, and your research on, on that game is very painstaking. So, you know what I'm talking about. You're, you're very kind. The, uh, when we published Liberty or Death, I asked... Kai Jensen, who did the proofreading in the playbook and the, and the rule book, how many words were in the box? And she said over 50,000 words prose <laughs> in the box. So, so I didn't get credit for a novel, but, uh, but I should get uh, you know, some, some uh, bibliography credit in the future. But it, 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 there is a tremendous amount of research and a tremendous amount of documentation required. Yeah. I don't write near as many um, magazine articles, historical magazine articles, as I used to. Um, but uh, I'm sure now that I've written just as many design notes, game rules, the, the, the word count there must at least equal my magazine article output. And it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words. Right. And, uh, but yet, I think it is very important you know, to, to show your homework in these kinds of things and to show how serious you've been um, about setting up you know, this, this model. It's it's another example of the high bar that Volko set for the rest of us. Oh, absolutely. That follow in his footsteps. Yeah, and and it was something that was really necessary, I think, uh, especially in the case of a distant plane, um, because Volko and I started work on this game in 2012, in 2012, 2013, when it came out. It came out, you know, from beginning to to actual publication was quite fast, about a year and a quarter, year and a half. Uh, but the thing is, is that the Afghan war w was still going on because uh, NATO had only just decided to terminate its, uh, or ISAF rather, had decided to terminate its combat role at the end of 2014. And here it is, you know, we're putting out a game on a war that is actually still going on. So, I mean, I've, I've told this story before, but uh, on Board Game Geek, when it became known that... Uh, Volk and I were working on a coin system game about the Afghanistan war. It started this thread on Board Game Geek that went for like a oh about 150 posts before it finally petered out, and nobody knew anything about the game at the time. 
they didn't know anything about the factions or the mechanics or the what the game was intended to prove or disprove. Um, so nobody had any real knowledge of it, but everybody had an opinion. <laughs> and they said so quite loudly. Of course. Except for one guy, about 60 posts in to this 150 post thread, one guy wrote in to say he had no interest in Afghanistan and no intention of buying the game. So there. <laughs> Because, you know, it was Board Game Geek. You know, right, you always get right, somebody right. to poke his head in oh, through the door and tell you he's not interested. It's a friendly group. Yes. It's a friendly group, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, but the thing is, is that everybody seemed to have this preconceived notion, you know, that it, well, some people were, you know, saw that we were serious about it from the get-go. And others said, oh, well, this is some kind of, you know, neoliberal plot. You know, I, I, I'm sure that... It, uh, if people who are familiar with Volko's earlier game, Labyrinth, and there are a lot of threads on Board Game Geek about um, sort of the worldview that they thought that the game espoused, whether it does or doesn't, I can't really say, but some people had some very strong opinions about what they thought that the game was thinking or, or how the game was intended to make people think. And it was the same thing in this game, A Distant Plane, you know, which we hadn't finished designing yet. And it, people were only just aware that it existed. But as I said, they had an opinion about it. So Volko and I handled that very carefully. And um, we kept very serious about it. And we were, I think, a really important part of uh, handling it was that we didn't yell back. We didn't yell back at the moon bats. And after a while, the moon bats went away. And we were very careful and very measured to tell people, and we were as good as our word later when the, when the game came out later, that we would be very serious about doing our homework, uh, about backing up everything that the game had to say, uh, and to, you know, give it proper balance. Mm -hmm. So I think we really succeeded with that. Um, now, I, I don't know what a moon bat is, <laughs> but, 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 I, but, I, but I know what you're talking about. And yep. I, I think that... Uh, that Volko is very good at setting that, that um, uh, setting another high bar for his interaction with the community, right? And certainly that of that that's active on social media. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and I put I put board game geek in the social media category. It meets my definition. But uh, I, I would also say that we all have to be careful not to let the vocal few overrepresent the mass, yes. right? Because I I think that there is a there's a group of very aggressive commenters and uh and and clearly you didn't let them influence in a negative way and and volko is very good about uh, and you are as well about listening but um you know at the same time i think we sometimes flinch a little bit at board game geek and 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 some of the more vocal uh participants when in reality they represent themselves yeah it can be very difficult to remember that uh because of the way they come across and the very you know, very forthright and, you know, way that they express themselves. Yeah, agreed. And I will say, again, uh, Volko is far more diplomatic and far more polite than I think I will ever be. So, um, <laughs> again, I'll yield the floor to him. Right, um, right. But uh, certainly, we, you know, it was difficult sometimes, but, but we held our tongues. And, you know, even after the game came out, there were still people who think, well, I think it's frankly an obscenity to design a game about a war that's still going on. And subsequently to the publication of the game, there were a few threads that came and went about how people felt uh, about veterans. You know, how would a veteran feel playing this game? Um, 
you know, is it is it is it triggering to them? Is it an insult to make something about the Afghan war and call it a game? Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. You know, you did your research. You you know, you said you're serious about it, and you've shown your work and everything. But still, it is a game. You know, it is a very abstracted model of a very real and horrible event to a lot of people. How can you justify that? Right. And I have to say, one of the best compliments or comments, um, might have been a little backhanded, uh, it came out of that was uh, a while later I was reading, um, I, uh, I was responding to a post about a distant plane on a blog by uh, a fellow, actually he's a chaplain in the Canadian military, uh, who also plays war games, and he was writing his thoughts about playing a distant plane. And um, I, uh, one of the people who commented on his blog said that, well, I tried to play a distant plane, um, but I kind of gave up because it, I found it was too much like work. And what he meant was he was feeling the same feelings of frustration and futility that he felt when he had been stationed in Helmand province as a U.S. Marine. Wow. So... Yes, it was. That was when I knew that I had connected on that particular level with that particular player. Uh, I, I'm sorry that he felt that those same feelings that must have dogged him every day that he was over in Afghanistan, and and yet I was pleased, you know, that I could kind of evoke these kinds of feelings you know, in someone, and of course there were other reviewers and players who had commented to me about, I, I, you know, this is a frustrating, futile game to play. It's just like, what's going on? How do I win? You know, how do I seize the capital kind of thing? And that was the point that I was trying to get across. And so I thought that, you know, there aren't many times when you understand that you've kind of connected, that, that your game, your game design, your art, has connected with somebody on that level. And the lesson that I hope other people will take away from this kind of game is that, yes, they can spend three or four or six hours playing a distant plane, but the point is, you know, maybe they'll feel angry and baffled and frustrated about the game, but after four or six hours, they can get up and they can walk away. But, you know, uh, the fellow who commented on that blog uh, he's out of Afghanistan now, but he was there then, and he couldn't just get up and walk away. Right. And that is just another point that I, I, that is another reason why I really like to design games on contemporary conflicts. And uh, because I think it is a very, very, um, I don't want to oversell it, I don't want to use the word urgent, but I think it is very important that people do their best to try and understand what's going on in the world nowadays. And if I can do some of that, if I can help some of that to, uh, through, the, through the medium of a game, uh, even if it's just to provoke people to read more or try to understand more in, in an effort to, you know, to prove me wrong, then that's fine. If I've driven somebody to go and read books because they disagree with what I've said in my game, that's great. You know, again, I have connected. Right. Maybe not quite the way I wanted to, but but I have connected, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, it's very it's very powerful. You know, I, I have these discussions with you about games and things that you're working on, and it's different than uh, discussing something from the age of reason, right? These are these are these are real people, people that we know, 
yes. right, that have been involved in these wars. Yeah. And and uh, so it, it's very real and it, hit, it hits home. So Yeah. I've spoken and written um, quite a lot about this in the last few years. Um, Volko and I co-wrote a chapter in an anthology that was brought out by uh, MIT Press a couple of years ago called Zones of Control. Uh, Matt Kirschenbaum and Pat Harrigan, who are both longtime gamers, um, edited it. Uh, it's a remarkable anthology. It's the first uh, anthology of writing uh, about tabletop war games, for the most part, uh, that's been collected in uh, ever, I think. And uh, it's a very thick book, and there are s short chapters in it on every aspect of table gaming, game design, uh, many, many different topics. But Volko and I co-wrote a chapter on irregular warfare, and in it we went uh, into uh, a, a bit of detail about games on contemporary irregular wars and how badly they are received and why they are badly received. Um, and part, a big reason for it is uh, a phrase that Volko coined called the indecency of recency. It's just too, too near. It's too new. Um, whether you know personally any veterans or not who were actually there, it is still something that dominates your recent experience of media. And I feel these games are important as ways to help people make sense of their own understanding of the media, but also hopefully to make them kind of critical of the media content that they see. Uh, and hopefully that there is that there is that. But it's definitely an area in the hobby that is under-gamed and under-represented. Um, I've, uh, I figure by going through Board Game Geek, uh, just, uh, I figure that there's probably something like maybe about 5,000 war games have been published ever since the 60s. And there are probably fewer than 100 of all those 5,000 games have to do with the default mode of conflict after World War II. So the last 50, 60 years, uh, it's been mostly irregular warfare. Uh, there have been things like the Falklands War, the various Arab-Israeli wars, these kinds of things, but they tend to be very short in duration. Um, but most of the actual conflict across the world has been irregular warfare. And I've found fewer than 100 examples of war games that are sort of above the level of a first-person shooter or a low-level tactical war game uh, I'm, and that deal seriously with it. And there are probably about 15, maybe 20 of that 100 deal with the last 25 years. And I have been involved in about half of those. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Um, I mean, it depends how you count. But the point is, is that there are not very many people working in this, in this field. Um, it used to be pretty much me and Joe Miranda. And right. once in a while, a couple of other people would do something. It's, um, it's got a lot more attention now. Uh, and there are some other uh, people working on, on uh, re you know, recent conflicts. Um, Javier Romero, for example, has, has done some interesting stuff. And, of course, we now we have the coin system games, um, like, um, you know, and Dan Abyss and A Distant Plane and, uh, and so forth. So it's good to see that, yes, it is getting more attention, but... It's kind of the same problems. Um, 
and because the, of the nature of the war, it's not just that it's a recent war, but also it's the nature of the war itself, because irregular wars are often civil conflicts, which are the cruelest and most violent of all. Um, and it can be, uh, you know, again, that is another reason why it's, it's not a majority interest. But again, I feel it's important for people to approach these things um, and in a, in a way to kind of make sense of what's happening in the world today. It's, it's a method to do it. Well, well done and, and keep up the good work. Yep. So we're up to nine. Nine. <laughs> and One more. The 10th game that I brought with me is a game that I actually did not design. Uh, it's one that I'm developing uh, together with Rex Brynan. Rex Brynan is a, sci a professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal. Rex and I go way back. Uh, he, he was taking an undergraduate degree in Victoria, the University of Victoria, which is my hometown. And when I was a teenager and getting into wargaming, uh, Rex was then doing his uh, undergrad in history. And there was and is a wargame club at UVic. And I would go there on the weekends. And uh, Rex was there. That's how I got to meet him. And we would play these huge micro-armor games, uh, the little 1-300 scale metal, metal tanks. And because Rex had the biggest collection, uh, we would play with his stuff. Uh, but because Rex collected mostly Warsaw Pact stuff, it was always Russians versus Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> So it was T fifty, you know, T sixty twos against T fifty nines kind of deal, you know. Anyway, that that was how I met Rex, and then Rex finished his degree and he moved away. And thirty years later, almost thirty years later, I met Rex again at one of these connections conferences on professional wargaming uh, at uh, National Defense University in Washington. And in between, Rex had become an academic, uh, and he uses games in his classes a lot. And this year, he had done a graduate course, and part of the course was having his graduate students design war games themselves. Uh, and this is the first time he'd done that uh, as kind of an experiment. And what he came out with was some very interesting stuff. Uh, he got a game about uh, some students did a game on refugees in South Sudan. Uh, there was another one about atrocities, uh, and a third one was these two designers had created a game about the f fighting to seize Mosul uh, in Iraq in uh, 2017. So it's an urban combat game. Uh, it's an area movement map of the city of uh, the western half of the city of Mosul. Uh, and you have um, the a division of the Iraqi army uh, plus uh, forces from the Ministry of the Interior and uh, Iraqi police are moving in on the, from the outskirts of the city, and they're uh, advancing on ISIS, which has occupied, they occupied Mosul for several years. So they had something on the order of a year to prepare the city for its, the, you know, for the invasion that they knew was coming. So it's an area movement map. Uh, it's got blocks, so it's a block war game, so you have plenty of fog of war. And what's interesting about it, and gives up a lot of replayability, is uh, these you have these capability cards that you purchase at the beginning of the game, and they can be all kinds of things, uh, like extra firepower, you know, for the coalition or drones, or uh, applying rules of engagement 
you know, because a crucial point for the Iraqis is to avoid collateral damage to the city and the civilian population. So you can try and keep that under control by applying rules of engagement. Meanwhile, ISIS has things like an IED factory and uh, technicals and vehicle-borne IEDs and child soldiers and human shields and all this kind of tunnel networks, all these kinds of things. So you can get these capabilities and use them during the game. And also during the game, we have these event cards that keep popping up. When one side rolls a one or a six during a battle, you pop up an event card. Usually it's something bad, uh, but it uh, can be, you know, apply a point of collateral damage, you know, or something like that. Or it can be this little vignette uh, that, uh, you know, something like where you have to make a quick decision. So, you know, a vehicle is approaching a checkpoint. Do you shoot it or do you not shoot it? You know, and depending on what you decide, you make a die roll and, oh, you decide not to shoot? Well, that car was full of suicide bombers. One of your units takes a step loss. You know, or you shoot and you make the wrong roll. Well, that car was full of people trying to get away. Take a point of collateral damage. So these games add, uh, these, this addition of these cards to, to what is a very simple mechanism uh, of the block war games um, with very simple processes to get into, that adds a lot of depth and replayability and suspense to the game as well. Um, and the nature of the, 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 the weight is on the Iraqi player. He has to retake the city. He has to clean out ISIS completely in a very short period of time. Yet he has to avoid um, causing too much collateral damage and he has to avoid taking too many casualties among his own forces. So he's under a lot of pressure from several different directions. Um, meanwhile, ISIS you know, tries to trade time for space and there's all kinds of awful things that they can do. Uh, so it's a really interesting game. And this is the first time these two students had uh, designed a war game at all. And so a really, really creditable first try. So Rex and I are helping them with the development, you know, cleaning up the language of the rules, um, you know, uh, trying to trying to gamer proof it, <laughs> you know, uh, because it's meant to be a simple but profound game about urban combat, which, again, is a subject that I feel is very, very important to study. And it's on a very recent battle, just from 2017, uh, and it was the largest, one of the largest, sustained urban operations since World War II. Um, again, uh, in this game, you have like an Iraqi armored division and substantial forces uh, from the Ministry of the Interior and Police fighting in a very large city. This is a battle that was far, far larger than Fallujah, you know, either of the battles of Fallujah, so, uh, or, or Grozny, uh, the battles for Grozny back in the 90s. This, was, this is far bigger and much longer term than that. So it was a significant one. And some of the things that are reflected in the game, you know, use of, uh, use of firepower, use of drones, uh, and uh, having to avoid casualties and civilian casualties. Um, these are important points for people to remember in, you know, in, in modern urban, urban combat. So I'm very pleased to, uh, to help uh, in the development of this game, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get it commercially published. Great. It's very much in your strike zone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Know, you. As, as they say in the United States uh, and parts of Canada, I guess. So... Brian, uh, let's make a transition to the informal, if you don't mind. Uh, I'd like to ask, what do you listen to music-wise? What do you enjoy? Oh, some people ask me that, and um, I'd have to call it difficult listening. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so not easy listening, but difficult listening. Yeah, kind of difficult listening. Um, well, I, I kind of, I, my, my musical taste, I, I grew up in, in the 80s, uh, but I was always interested in kind of unusual music. Um, shocking to me, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was, um, I listened to, well, I, I guess a, a term that covers a lot of is in, industrial music. Uh, so it's uh, industrial, sort of experimental, uh, older electronic stuff. Some of my favorite stuff is like Kraftwerk, Devo, and then some really strange stuff like The Residents from San Francisco, uh, just some odd oddballs like that. Um, but um, there's all kinds of different types of music that I do enjoy, you know, um, and, and they, when you listen to a certain type of music, it'll lead you off into other types of music. Like, uh, I really liked, uh, the cramps, mm. you know, and, uh, of course the cramps are very upfront about their influences, you know, that weird, there was a lot of weird music that wasn't covered very, it was there, but it wasn't very well known in the late fifties and the early sixties. And, um, and and the cramps uh, tapped right into that. And you have crazy people like, you know, uh, who was it? Um, um, Hazel Atkins. Now, sometimes I, uh, I, if yeah, look up Hazel Atkins. For uh, sure. Hazel, H-A-Z-E-L, or no, I-L, because he spelled it a weird way. Adkins, A-D-K-I-N-S. And uh, sometimes... I once called myself the, the, the Hazel Adkins of wargaming. Just like this <laughs> crazy guy in a shack trying it's, to do it all by himself. <laughs> well, you know, people that have met Hazel Adkins remember Hazel Adkins. Yeah, so that's the same is true for Brian Train. Yeah. reading there you mentioned uh, a, a couple of books already but i just uh what's kind of core to what your references perhaps you could provide uh, or or what you're reading now that you're interested in that doesn't have anything to do with this well uh, when i'm working on a game of course i'm looking through a lot of reference uh sources and uh that that can dominate my my reading i have a, an appetite for um, science fiction from the 50s and 60s, mm, sort of the 70s. I don't read a lot of contemporary science fiction. Um, I like the older stuff uh, that was, in its own way, not the sort of space opera kind of thing. I mean, you know, uh, but um, sort of the more interesting writers, like uh, Cyril Cornblith was one of my favorite writers from the 50s. Uh, because he had a way of, of touching on different subjects. Um, one of my favorite writers, period, and my favorite science fiction writer is J.G. Ballard, uh, and just a, a, a fantastic writer. Um, and a writer who I still follow, uh, who followed from, who was very obviously influenced by Ballard, at least at the, at the beginning, was uh, William Gibson. So uh, people like William Gibson... Uh, Bruce Sterling, uh, J.G. Ballard. Uh, those are some of my favorite uh, science fiction writers. Um, Philip K. Dick, if I want to have my skull rattled, 
uh, and other people. You know, uh, uh, some of the there's some very interesting uh, women writers from the '60s that I enjoy, uh, and um, Joanna Russ, for example, is one of the, the better known ones. But there are other ones too. Uh, James Tiptree, uh, who was actually Alice Rakuna Sheldon, uh, but wrote under the name of James Tiptree because she knew full well that she couldn't would no would not be published as right. Alice Sheldon. Uh, it only became apparent, you know, like a, that most of science fiction believed that she was a man until, uh, I can't remember exactly how it came out, but, you know. But the point is, is that she earned respect as a writer initially by pretending to be a man, uh, which is a sad comment, you know, on science fiction then and, and now, frankly. Um, but a very, very interesting writer. So, um, yeah, I have an appetite for, for that kind of uh, science fiction and short stories more than novels. I do enjoy short stories more than novels. Let's see, who else do I like to, to read? So what about a book? Give me a book. A what's book? Your favorite, what's your favorite book from, from, from that universe of, of authors? Which hmm. one would you go back to? My one favorite book. A favorite book. A favorite book. One favorite book. I, I could certainly pick a favorite writer, and that would be J.G. Ballard. Uh, my favorite book of Ballard's would be, okay, I would cheat and say his collected short stories, <laughs> <laughs> which is a book. Right. <laughs> it's right. a very thick book with 110 short stories in it. But, right. Uh, very good. You know, but, very good. Yes. But I, is, is it my favorite novel of his would probably be probably High Rise. Or crash, um, and he wrote another novel. Although you couldn't really call it a novel, it was very experimental. Called the Atrocity Exhibition, which is like a bunch of short pieces that kind of make a novel. It's Ballard at his most experimental, and it can be very challenging writing. Um, very challenging to read. Um, but uh, yeah, those are probably three of my favorite Ballard long pieces but i do enjoy his short stories a good lot. good well you're highly evasive so i'm gonna have to work to keep you uh on message the um the other thing i like to ask is what about television movies what have you seen recently you've enjoyed hmm um i don't watch a lot of new television um my wife and i watch uh we watch um stephen colbert's program and uh seth meyers you know that kind of those, those talk shows uh, we started in on watching Stephen Colbert and because and John Stewart because it was obvious that some of the best journalists working today are actually comedians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so take that what you will. Right. Um, and uh, we like to watch some old TV. I like older TV. Uh, I like old movies. Uh, I watch a lot of movies. Um, I would say the m- best recent movie that I've seen, and I highly recommend it, uh, is The Death of Stalin. Uh, we uh, don't go to, we, we don't watch, you know, new movies much. Um, and when we do, they're usually pretty disappointing. But this was something that really measured up. A very black humor. Uh, it was written by the same guy uh, who did uh, Veep, which was an HBO series that we enjoyed very much. Um, so it's the same kind of dark humor. Um, and most of the history that is shown in the movie actually, actually occurred, you know. So it's, uh, but it's very, very funny. Uh, Steve Buscemi 
How do you pronounce it? Buscemi? Buscemi? Buscemi. Buscemi. Okay. I believe. I know what these words mean. I just don't know how to say them. <laughs> um, but he, his role as, as Khrushchev is great. Right. You know, and it's a very, very funny, savagely funny book or a movie. And um, it's, uh, I really, really recommend it. I can't imagine you have time to play other games, but I'd love to hear if you're playing something that you're not play testing or working on. What else do you play? Oh, yeah, that's the problem, is um, I design more games than I play, and it's been that way for a long time. Uh, I acquire games. I'm still acquiring them. Um, and uh, But I have to say it that I collect them as reference sources, or I'll collect a game, uh, I'll buy a game and look at it uh, because I think it has some interesting mechanics. So I'm kind of looking at it from the viewpoint of a designer and not as a player. Um, however, there are some games that I've been enjoying uh, the last while. Um, I finally got around to playing Twilight Struggle. I don't know. I I, I don't know why I was putting it off. I, I wasn't consciously putting it off, because the greatest goof up of my war game career, I gotta say, is I was in email contact with Ananda Gupta back when he was first working on Twilight Struggle. He hadn't even given it the title, Twilight Struggle, yet, but I had heard, I think it was through Board Game Geek, I'm not sure, maybe it might have been Consum World, that uh, he was working on a Cold War, like a, a game, <laughs> a strategic game that took in the whole of the Cold War. And I thought, man, i got to get into that. And this was about 2000 or so, I think 2000, 2002. Right. And I wrote Ananda, and I said, oh, this, is, uh, this sounds great. I've been dreaming of a game like this. I'd love to get involved <laughs> in it. And he wrote back to me, and we had an email bouncing back and forth for two or three exchanges. And uh, he said... I just, I, I really don't know if this is going to, I don't know this is, I don't know if this is enough of a Euro. I don't know if it's enough of a war game. I don't know what group of people would buy this thing. I just don't know if it's going to be commercially successful. And that was one of the last things that Ananda wrote to me because um, there was a gap in the correspondence. I got busy doing other war games and that was the last I was involved in the project. I never had a chance to become involved in the project. But oh boy, the greatest boner. I had a chance to be involved <laughs> in the testing and development of Twilight Struggle and I fluffed and it. And passed. So anyway, but I finally got around to playing it you right. know, with my son. Uh, I don't have a regular gaming group where I live. Uh, so... You know, my son and I, my, he, he will help me play test something and help me to get something Perfect. roughed in. And when he's got time, we'll play other games as well, because he doesn't like playing just dad stuff. Right. You know? um, and uh, so, yeah, we played it. We quite enjoyed it. Um, uh, I spent most of last year working on Nights of Fire, which is the sequel to Days of Fire. Uh, Days of Ire came out a couple of years ago, and it's a game on the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. So this is what happened during October of 1956. And it was designed uh, by a Hungarian fellow who lives in London, and his name is David Turzi. And uh, he's Hungarian himself, as I said. Um, and so I got wind of this, the Kickstarter for this game, and because I got in on it, because I was interested in the Budapest Revolution, and I had designed Operation Whirlwind, which was a small game uh, on uh, the November, you know, invasion uh, with the Soviets in November of 1956. And uh, back then, that was the first game ever done on, on uh, the street fighting in Budapest. 
so I got in on the Kickstarter and I, I wrote a note to the designer saying, um, oh, well, I, uh, I just got into this. I'm, you know, really into this. You may know that I might have, uh, you might know that I've designed this game on uh, the fighting for Budapest that happened the month after in November of, of 1956. And uh, I, I told him about this chrome rule that I had put in Operation Whirlwind called uh, the musical accompaniment rule. And uh, one of the objectives on the map is uh, the, uh, the broadcasting station for Hungarian state radio. And uh, before the revolution, uh, the only thing that the, was broadcast on Hungarian state radio was uh, speeches and news, never played any music. So the revolution came, and uh, the only uh, record that the insurgents could find in the building was a recording of Beethoven's Egmont Overture. And so the rule is that for as long as the insurgents occupy that objective with, um, uh, of the Hungarian state radio, they can play a recording of the Egmont Overture over and over again very loudly until the Soviets <laughs> seize the objective and break the record. <laughs> and, you know, you, can, you could probably get away playing it eight or nine times, you know, if, if uh, the Soviets so, uh, take their time taking the objective. It's a very effective psychological warfare. <laughs> exactly. So I told him about that rule, and, um, and I thought, you know, okay, that's fine. You know, maybe it amused him. A few hours later, he wrote back saying, oh, that was you. Well, <laughs> let's work on the sequel. Okay. So David and I work, spent much of last year working on Knights of Fire, which is about the military crackdown that followed the October Revolution that installed, you know, the, the, the government of Imranaj. And it was really, really interesting working with David because David is mostly a Euro designer, but he's played enough war games to speak the dialect. And so what we ended up with was sort of a militarized Euro game or a Euroized war game, but it's something in between that's uh, really suspenseful and it goes quickly. Uh, and it's uh, got a lot of fog of war and it's got a lot, of, a lot of unpredictability in it. Okay, militarily, it's completely one-sided, but the Soviet player is under tremendous time pressure uh, and wants to avoid, you know, avoid taking casualties to his own forces. Uh, meanwhile, the insurgents are, you know, trying to do as best they can to, you know, to trip up the Soviets. And um, it's uh, it's very very interesting. Um, so it was it was great to work on that, and uh, it was great to work uh, with this on David because he had such a different background and a different sense of what mechanics could be used to solve problems that arose during play. One was, for example, we wanted to have a solitaire version. And so uh, what came up with, uh, what he came up with was an AI, a card-based AI. So the Soviet player becomes a deck of 12 cards. That's all it is, it's 12 cards, but it's so frustrating to play against. (laughs) So, you know, that was a problem that he solved really, really well. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, I had done, you know, a lot of the the research. So sort of like the military and historical parameters (laughs) of the game uh, were there. And, you know, working on on keeping sort of the the design within bounds in that sense as well. And uh, we did the Kickstarter for that in March of this year. And some people who go to Essen, uh, there might be some advanced copies out in time for Essen uh, in October. Other than that, uh, the Kickstarter went very well, and uh, the copies will be coming out in January or February. So that was uh, really nice to work on, but to really understand the game that I was working on, I had to go back and play Days of Ire 
uh, which was really interesting to kind of jump into David's mind and go through this sort of uh, cooperative game, which again, you could play solo um, on, on the revolution that preceded, you know, the military crackdown. Uh, let's see, what else have I been playing recently of other people's? Um, I can't imagine that you have time. I really, I really generally, I don't. Generally, I don't. The productive, uh, your productive capacity is extraordinary, but I'm sure that the trade-off, uh, like many of us, is we just don't have the time to play other people's games. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, I, I find other people's work really fascinating. Right. There's just like so many great ideas floating around Agreed. out there. And I just, I, that, that is why I love coming to Consum World. I don't come here to play, frankly. I have never done anything but open gaming here or, or play testing with other people. I come here to talk to people. I come here to talk to other designers and I talk to publishers, but mostly I like to talk to designers about the stuff that they've done and just, oh, well, you know, oh, you did something on this. Well, how did you handle that? You know, why was, why did you think this was important? Right. And of course, these guys, they're so, you know, people have done good research. They're so well read, you know, uh, about these kinds of things. It's, it's very fascinating. Right. And they've solved the problems that you and I are trying to solve now before. I think that a lot of these, uh, yeah. and, and I, you know, this is, I think this consum world is an extraordinary industry event. Uh, as much as it is a game convention, right? The, uh, the it's great to walk around and see the the, the big games set up and playing, and, and to be able to find people with common interests and play those sorts of games. But as you said, it's the people you meet and, the, and you get to mix with uh, from uh, just tons and tons of designers and, and people that have, at very least, developed and thought through uh, some of these games. So uh, I'll close with saying that uh, Brian, it's this is seeing you every year is a highlight of my con sim and a a real pleasure. And, uh, and, and we have a bunch of stories that I want to convey in recording at some point, but we don't have the chance now, but we're going to do it in the future. Sure. Uh, But, but, but thank you for taking the time to talk to me about what's going on. And I'm very excited to, to see the results of all your work. Well, thanks a lot, Harold. And it's been great to see you like it is every year. And, uh, I'd be more than happy to do this again. And, up more anecdotes for sure. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Visalia, California-based band Slow Season for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Brian Train. And that's it for me. As always... People call me the Hazel Adkins of podcasting, and I'll be back soon.